Thank you, Professor Craig Calhoun. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yang berbahagia Datuk Li Haohian, the President of the Malaysian Alumni Group of the LLC, Professor Sir Christopher Pizzerites, the Regis Professor of Economics and Nobel Laureate, distinguished guests, excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, and very good morning. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank um, Professor Craig Calhoun and the uh, members of the LSE for having me uh, this morning. Uh, it is indeed uh, my pleasure to be here in front of uh, very eminent people uh, here in this room. I never realized that we have so many um, LSE intellectuals uh, like uh, in one room uh, today. And um, indeed, uh, thank you for welcoming me here this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been 26 days since the disappearance of MH370. Uh, it has been um, a tragedy, uh, not only for all of us here in Malaysia, but also uh, for the uh, international community as well. Uh, this disappearance has been unprecedented and be rest assured that Malaysia, like many other countries, will spare no effort in trying to search and recover MH370. In that respect, the Prime Minister has asked me to convey his warm regards to all of you and to convey his apologies for not being able to make it this morning. He is required to be in Perth, Australia this morning to meet with the many people who are involved in the search and recovery efforts and thereafter to meet with Prime Minister Tony Abbott from Australia in Perth today. And um, with that, um, he's uh, truly sorry for not being able uh, to be here uh, again. Allow me, ladies and gentlemen, to read uh, his keynote address on his behalf. Ladies and gentlemen, I must begin my remarks today on a somber note. In the vastness of the Indian Ocean, the search for MH370 continues. This has been an extraordinarily difficult time for the families of the passengers and crew. We hope and pray that the search operation is successful so that they may begin to find some closure. The search effort has been truly multinational with an enormous contribution from our friends and allies from the world, and especially those here in Asia. We have been grateful and impressed in equal measure by the cooperation that we have received. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to be invited to address the LSE Asia Forum, which has done much to strengthen the connection between Clare Market and our continent. LSE's most valuable export has always been its alumni, the people uh, who have gone on to make their mark in politics, in economics, and in civil society. Five Asian countries have been led by LSE graduates, and in our region, as in the world, your institution has been an oversized presence in the halls of power. So it is with pleasure that we host the sixth LSE Asia Forum here in Kuala Lumpur, and that I take this chance to talk about the future of Asian development. 50 years ago, Asia accounted for less than 15% of global output. Today, it is more than 40%. Within a single generation, the most populous region on Earth became one of the most prosperous. 50 years ago, the South Korean economy 
was smaller than Mozambique's. Today, it is almost equal to the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa. 50 years ago, Kuala Lumpur was not even classed as a city. Today, it is twice as big as San Francisco. Asia's remarkable economic development, perhaps the fastest in history, has been accompanied by waves of political reform. A few decades ago, there were only a handful of free societies in Asia. Today, the Philippines, Taiwan, Korea, Malaysia, and Indonesia, between them, home to 400 million people, have joined the growing list of vibrant Asian democracies. Much has been written about this extraordinary phase in Asia's development and what it means for the global order. Often from the perspective of the main protagonist, a surging China and a resurgent America. But Asia, the world's most populous region, is about much more than one country or one relationship. New centuries of wealth and influence and new pressures and hotspots are emerging throughout the continent. It is too complex to picture to see through the lens of US-China relations alone. Asia's 4.3 billion people speak hundreds of languages. They live amongst the world's biggest cities, highest mountains, and most remote islands. Asia has a larger middle class than Europe and is home to more billionaires than North America. Yet, a quarter of its people live on less than two US dollars a day, and pressure on its resources is relentless. It is a vast and varied continent more than 4,000 miles separate Karachi from Kyoto, but the cultural and economic distance between them is greater still. To understand the implications of Asia's rise and to build an image of what it will look like, it will look like in the future, we must take multiple exposures and combine them into one. It is with this principle in mind that I would like to offer you my thoughts on Asian development as seen from a Malaysian perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, our nation is a bridge between cultures, markets, and ideas, home to indigenous communities living in long houses and Asia's first internationally linked stock exchange. And by 2020, it is set to become one of the first nations in this century to make the leap from developing to the developed world. Many of the issues facing Asian societies, from the, from the best recipe for economic development to the nature of sustainable growth are being explored here in Malaysia. It is a useful lens through which to examine the rise of Asia and to consider the opportunities and challenges of economic development starting with our own. In the 50 years since independence, Malaysia's GDP has increased more than a hundredfold. Over the past four decades, we have averaged nearly 7% in annual growth and poverty rates have fallen from 49% to less than 2%, and per capita gross national income has risen from 389 US dollars to some 10,000 US dollars. This growth has been matched by a fundamental change in the structure of our economy. Like many Asian countries, we have moved from an economy based on agriculture and raw commodities to a multi-sector economy driven by services and manufacturing. This shift has been driven by government, which has set a clear direction for the country using macroeconomic policy to achieve strategic aims. Our economy has been more, certainly planned, more centrally planned than some Western nations are used to, 
and we have defied economic orthodoxy on occasion too. During the Asian financial crisis, we rejected the IMF's erroneous prescriptions and recovered faster than our neighbours. But our story is neither one of the state choking off the private sector, nor a big bang of deregulation. It is about a gradual and managed reform. It is our belief that by opening up both politically and economically, we can remain competitive in an increasingly connected world and on course to reach the developed nation status. Ladies and gentlemen, when that threshold is crossed, it will be a significant moment in our nation's history. But we understand that development at the expense of people or the environment cannot be lasting. For Malaysia and for Asia, development must be both inclusive and sustainable. The new economic powers cannot repeat the mistakes of the old. As Asian states, such as my own, strive to become high-income developed nations, and as emerging economies push for a place on the middle-income ladder, they must ensure social development is not sacrificed in the name of growth. For all the extraordinary statistics about investment and expansion, Asia remains home to two-thirds of the world's poorest people. In many cases, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is widening as wealth concentrates in the hands of the wealthy. Divides are opening up between urban and rural populations and locked out of economic opportunity too many Asian people lack access to basic social infrastructure, sanitation, healthcare, and housing. If we do not give all of our citizens a stake in our region's future, we risk encouraging ethnic tensions, religious extremism, and political instability. That, in turn, imperils the very objective we seek, a more prosperous and harmonious Asia. So we must ensure development brings economic opportunity for all, not riches for a few. That it expands not just nominal GDP figures, but also critical social infrastructure. That means understanding the structural drivers of inequality, whether cultural, political, or economic, and then acting on them. One such driver is corruption. Many Asian economies are affected by corruption, which crushes individual endeavor and harms social cohesion. Corruption not only eats away at people's confidence in the institutions of the state, it also suppresses meritocratic opportunity, choking off entrepreneurialism and driving our talent abroad. If Asia is to capitalize on the promise of the 21st century, we must consign corruption to the history books. It can be done. As Hong Kong has shown, it is possible to stem even the strongest tides. It takes decades, not years, and it requires near universal commitment and thorough enforcement. But the reward is a more open and transparent business environment with more vibrant markets, greater individual opportunity, and stronger belief in government's ability to affect to effect change for the better, each of which is crucial if Asia's development is to continue apace. I also believe Asian states must look to build stronger, more lasting economic connections, both within our region and with the outside world. As you will discuss in one of the plenary sessions in this conference, greater financial integration across borders can not only help 
developing nations climb the ladder, but also ensure fewer citizens are left behind as common standards and entry requirements filter back to domestic policy. As a founding member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, Malaysia supports the push to create a single market in Southeast Asia. It is my hope that ASEAN economic community will bind us together in the service of common goals, providing greater depth of opportunity for citizens across the region. A thriving single market will support jobs, growth, and increase the standard of living for more than half a billion people. It will also ensure that Asia's remarkable growth story spills across into all member states. That, in turn, is the ultimate guarantor of Asia's success, not just in base economic terms, but in meeting the highest ambitions for its development. But in an interdependent global economy, the benefits of greater cooperation extend far beyond Asia's borders. That is why I look forward to the completion of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will strengthen our ties with the wider world, and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which will bring three of the largest economies into the world's largest trading bloc. For Asian economies, integration offers significant benefits, including the ability to negotiate together. Pursued prudently, it can increase the power of middle nations and raise living standards for all. Yet, as Asian nations open up to the global economy, we must also do our best to encourage and practice a more accountable capitalism. Around the world, there is an ongoing discussion about the nature of the modern market economy, about how capitalism can serve the people and nations, not just businesses. Not only public confidence in financial industries has been shaken, but commentators are asking whether the business model that puts shelter value above all else is truly sustainable. Many policymakers are now preoccupied with the quality of growth. The common concern here is a greater corporate accountability, not just to the immediate bottom line, but also to the society which enables transactions to take place. One of the primary lessons from the 2008 financial crisis was that short-term business decisions can fatally undermine the health, not just of companies, but of the whole economies. It is incumbent on policymakers to guard against them and on corporate leaders to avow them. As Asian economies mature and compete for a greater share of financial services markets, we must learn from past events. In Malaysia, for example, we want a vibrant and dynamic financial sector, but we have also set up clear regulatory structures, giving our central bank greater supervisory oversight and enhanced financial surveillance. Having been through a financial crisis in the last century, we were more than prepared for the 2008 crisis and the crash. With better governance, capitalization, and liquidity requirements for the financial institutions. Similarly, having seen what happened in some European countries whose deficits rose in the good times and soared in the bad times, we have taken steps to bring our finances under control by reducing our subsidy bill and trimming expenditure. We are also looking to safeguard the economy by increasing corporate diversity. By 2016, 30% of our boards of directors in Malaysian companies must be women. As academic studies have shown, that will make for healthier, more profitable firms, and in turn, will strengthen our economy. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Asia's development depends on our ability to act, to reduce inequality, to build stronger economic connections, to commit to a more accountable capitalism. The challenges of economic development and sustainable growth will test Asia's capability and its resolve. They will not be met without a commitment to cooperation, without the investment of time, resources, and without political will. But I believe we will do it. I believe in Asia's potential. I believe in Asia's ability to find sustainable growth models, not unbalanced ones, to create opportunities for all, rather than wealth for a few. And I believe that we can make the hard calls required to sustain peace and prosperity in an age of dizzying ascendance. Over the past decades, great change has come to Asia. Even greater change awaits by choosing to work together, to look not for dividing lines but for common ground, we can ensure that change brings better lives for our citizens and better futures for our countries. Thank you. Minister, on behalf of everyone here, Many thanks for your speech and many thanks to the Prime Minister. This has provided us with much food for thought for the day ahead, an indication of real achievements of economic growth and international cooperation, and at the same time, serious challenges, both new challenges and continuing challenges. I would ask that in a moment, as I escort the Minister off the stage, you all remain in your seats as we continue the LSE Asia Forum that's opening session. We are very lucky that so many world leaders come to visit the LSE in London and also at its events around the world. We have a tradition at the LSE which started when Nelson Mandela visited the school of presenting our most distinguished guests and speakers with a special memento.